This is Honestly. All these years I've stayed at home while you had all your fun. And every year that's gone by, another baby's come. It's hard to think of an invention that's been more transformative in the lives of women than the birth control pill. You set this chicken your last time, cause now I've got the pill. With the invention of the pill in the 1950s, and then its legality and widespread adoption in the 1960s, suddenly American women had a power that women never before in history had. Mini skirts, hot pants, and a few little fancy frills. Yeah, I'm making up for all those years since I've got the pill. With a tiny little pill, they could control when they got pregnant. They could have sex like men. And this ushered in what's become known as the sexual revolution. Feminists pushed aside puritanical ideas about the evils of premarital sex. They started to celebrate the fun of being single. Some of them worked to normalize things like pornography. And with no-fault divorce and abortion becoming legalized across the country, feminism and the sexual revolution were seen as liberating forces, freeing women from the boxes and, frankly, the biology that they'd been trapped in for centuries. And even though few women would want to give up the rights that were won, hard won, during those decades, rights like equal protection or equal pay, the right to decide when we get pregnant, a lot of people are looking around at things like hookup culture or the presence of increasingly brutal porn or the fact that marriage and birth rates are at historical lows, and they're wondering, did we go wrong somewhere along the way? The past decade has seen dramatic drops in the number of people identifying as feminists, especially among young Americans, including young women. A recent poll asked American women under the age of 50 if they agree with the following phrase, feminism has done more harm than good. Half of Republican women said yes, but also, and this is what was surprising, a quarter of Democrats. Today, a debate about porn, about sex, about feminism, and about whether or not the sexual revolution has done more harm than good. Our debaters are Jill Filipovich. Jill's an author and an attorney. She's written about women and feminism for The New York Times, The Washington Post, The Guardian, Cosmo, and many more. She has a newsletter at jill.substack.com. Joining her is Louise Perry. She's a writer based in London and a columnist at The New Statesman. She's also the author of the new book, The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. We're going to get into it all here. Casual sex, incels, whether or not porn should be a deal breaker in a relationship. You don't want to miss it. Stay with us.
You're about to hear a preview of The Jordan Harbinger Show, where we expose how patent trolls shake down innocent victims using legal loopholes and abuse of the system. Hello, I notice you've been sued for patent infringement. I'd be happy to represent you for a price. Just remember, your defense cost is going to run around $3 million. Wow. The patent we were sued on had, as I recall, 113 claims. And every claim was almost the same. In other words, one claim would say, a computer accessing another computer to unlock software. And the next thing would be, software unlocked by one computer accessing another computer. That was just the same thing over and over 113 times, phrased a little bit differently each time. Since it took us four years and $2 million to overturn one of those sentences, they could put us through this for the rest of our lives. For more with Austin Meyer, including the details of his investigation into patent trolls and why none of us are safe, check out episode 326 of The Jordan Harbinger Show. There's so much more to Jewish history than persecution. I know it's sometimes hard to believe that when you talk to Jews, but trust me, there is. And in Jewish History Unpacked, the newest podcast from the people who brought you Unpacking Israeli History, you'll find out about some of the craziest, most amazing, but lesser-known stories that fill the Jewish history books. Given that the Jewish people's history goes back for millennia and spans continents and epochs, there are so many stories you just won't want to miss. You'll end up asking yourself questions that you never thought of, like, was Napoleon actually a hero for the Jews? And why were there so many suicide pacts in the first century? Hosts Yael Steiner and Jonathan Schwab will fill you in on what happened, how it happened, and why all of these ancient stories still matter. You can find Jewish History Unpacked wherever you listen to your podcasts. Louise Perry, Jill Filipovich, welcome to Honestly. Hello, thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. <laughs> We're here to debate feminism and the sexual revolution, but I want to be clear at the start. We're not here to debate today whether or not women should have the right to vote or whether or not women should be paid the same amount as men for the same work. We're here to debate the following. Has feminism done more harm than good? Or maybe a better way of asking that is, has the sexual revolution and the causes that many women's groups have taken up in the past half century made life better or worse for women? So to do that, I think we need to first get on the same page about what the women's rights movement was, what the sexual revolution actually was. Given that you guys know much more about this than me, I want to invite each of you to tell me the story as you understand it of what happened for women in the 20th century. I think a lot of people forget, or maybe just never even knew, that it wasn't until 1920 in the U.S. and 1928 in the U.K. that women won the right to vote. At the start of the 20th century, women were hardly more valuable than horses. And by the end of it, people don't even care that much if a woman is secretary of state or prime minister. So how did we get from there to here? Jill, let's start with you. Tell me your version of how you understand the movement for women's rights in the 20th century. So, I mean, the 20th century was truly revolutionary for women's rights. And I'll focus kind of mostly on the second half of it because I think that's the the focus of the podcast today. But you had two movements that were interrelated, dovetailing with each other, but often also in tension, which is the feminist movement and then the sexual revolution. Both of those movements were very much spurred on by the invention of the birth control pill, by the birth control pill coming to market 
And then by a 1965 Supreme Court case that made access to birth control universal for American women, followed shortly thereafter by a Supreme Court case that made abortion legal for women. So you had a lot of the constraints around sexuality, a lot of the uh, historical, frankly, punishments for free sexual behavior among women lessened. And that gave women vast increases in power. It meant women flooded into higher education. It meant women flooded into the workforce. It meant women could essentially plan their futures like never before. Unfortunately, the sexual revolution did not also come with a totally successful feminist movement. And so you had at the same time as greater freedoms for women, you still had broad cultural and and frankly still legal misogyny that was holding women back and and complicating the potential gains of that revolution. So we have the pill, we have changing social attitudes, we have no-fault divorce laws, we have some key Supreme Court decisions, including Roe here in the U.S. You know, Louise, you've just published this book that's called provocatively The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. How do you understand (laughs) the sort of sweep of history that Jill just briefly took us through? Where do you differ from her version of it? I think we agree on a great deal. I mean, we we have, um, you know, I'm obviously based in the UK, but we're talking about roughly the same kind of landmark events. We have the pills arrival and and we have the decriminalization of abortion and so on happening all at uh, roughly the same time. And of course, Anglophone feminism has always had um, strong connections worldwide. Um, I think where I differ in from a, a very kind of dominant narrative of feminist history is that I tend to place less emphasis on the work of campaigners. There clearly have been some very charismatic and intelligent and successful campaigners, not only in the 20th century, obviously, but in earlier periods too. But I don't think that's actually what's driving change. I think that the main thing that is driving change for women, and particularly in the 20th century and before, is material change. So the pill is a great example of that. You know, you suddenly have this technology shock, you have this this drug arrive for the first time in the history of the world that allows women to control their fertility in a way that they've never been able to do so before. You have, a, you know, myriad other changes as well to the economy, the fact that we move away from industrial manual work towards a knowledge economy, a service economy, the sort of jobs that women can participate in on equal footing to men because they don't rely on physical strength. And that's one of the great stories of the 20th century, that male physical strength becomes so much less important on an economic level and therefore on a social and cultural level, which, which allows women to participate in public life, right? You've got things like washing machines, cookers, central heating, you know, all of these technologies that allow housekeepers to, to basically spend less time keeping households warm and fed. You have things like tampons, you know, there's disposable nappies and and like an interesting fact is that men only start actually helping to change nappies diapers I think you say in in the states when disposable nappies come come on the market in the 1980s before then you have to do this incredibly awful laborious task of of washing them in your sink or if you're washing machine if you have them which you know imagine imagine the labor involved in doing that so I think that the main thing that changes women's lives is the fact that our material circumstances change so dramatically. And as a result of that, we see the push to have women in in the workforce on equal terms with men, you know, have women having access to the professions, having access to politics and so on. And I think as well that when you look at some of the sweep of women's history, feminism is not unique to the 20th century, although the way that we understand it obviously is, is largely derived from the 20th century movement. 
the points at which you see feminist ideas flaring up, uh, the points at which you're seeing changes in material circumstances, you're seeing a sudden shift. So I don't think it's a coincidence, for instance, that you see suffrage flaring up at exactly the same time, not only that you have the First World War, but you also have the internal combustion engine. You have this like radical change in the nature of energy Mm. and industry, right? Similarly, in the 1960s, you have radical changes in the economy. You have the move away. You have deindustrialization, which is a very long process, but a very, very significant one. And I think now, actually, we may be seeing another flare-up in feminist thinking, like more, more controversy, more everyone wants to talk about this all the time at the moment, right? Because I think we're seeing another transition, which is, which is the tech-enabled one. And further as well, you know, obviously the internet, whatever, but f- further as well into our, our bodies, you know, the fact that we now have so much more mastery over the human body than we ever had before. And, and there's this question, like, how is this going to impact women? How is this going to impact the relationship between the sexes? Because that's a fundamental feminist question, you know, how are the sexes supposed to get along? So when you say, Louise, in the title of your book, for those who haven't read it, the case against the sexual revolution, I think the listener is probably wondering, how deep does she want to go there? Is she saying (laughs) hookup culture is bad or is she saying we regret the advent of the pill? I don't regret the advent of the pill. I think that the consequences of the sexual revolution have been very complex. And I think that that is what you would expect of any kind of massive historical movement. I am an agnostic on progress. I don't call myself a progressive, even if I agree with progressives on a whole bunch of things, because I think this whole idea of history having a shape is nonsense. I think that this, you know, history is just... Like it's not um, an arc that's bending it's towards not justice. An arc. No, we have no idea where it's headed, unfortunately. Right? But it's, I mean, it's an idea derived from Christianity fundamentally, isn't it? The idea of history having, having an arc, it doesn't. And I think that to see the sexual revolution solely in those terms and see it solely as to women's benefit is an error. There are all sorts of ways in which I think women's lives have got better and also loads of ways in which women's lives have got worse. And the, 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 the case I'm making is against that narrative, against that kind of, I would say, very naive narrative of the sexual revolution. So for me, when I think of the women's rights movement, I have previously always thought about it in terms of freedoms. So the pill, right? The pill freed women to have sex and control when they got pregnant. No-fault divorce freed women suddenly from bad marriages that they otherwise would have stayed in. Cultural attitudes, largely driven by feminists, freed women to have sex with other people who weren't their husbands and not suffer the same social stigma as previous generations of women had. And even abortion, right? Whatever you think of it, it gave women freedom over their own bodies and to choose whether to carry a pregnancy to term or not. But one of the reasons I wanted to host this debate is because I now in adulthood see that those freedoms have come with invisible and maybe unpredictable costs. So the pill and changing cultural attitudes allowed women to have casual sex. But also, can anyone look at hookup culture and tell me that that's a net positive for women? Can anyone look at the number of children born and raised in single-parent homes and tell me that's not somehow related to how easy it is to get a divorce? Or even women my age who were told, right, that we could have it all. Many of them and many of these people are my friends. They're now in their late 30s wondering when, if at all, they're ever going to be able to start a family. Those are the things I did not see when I was 20 years old that I now do see. So you're never going to get an argument from me as a feminist, as a gay woman about to have a child, 
about turning back the clock. I'm never going to romanticize the past. I am thrilled that I live in this moment. But I also think the time has come to really look closely at the collateral damage or at least the unintended consequences that I'd previously not thought of and think about a new way forward. So if we can, let's break it down into topics and let's start with the big one, which is sex. Jill, the sexual revolution gave women the opportunity to treat sex much more casually. It created the unprecedented ability for women to treat sex much more like men had had the luxury of doing throughout basically all of human history. Do you think that that has largely been a net positive or a net negative for women and for society? I think overwhelmingly net positive. Having the ability to plan the number and spacing of your children has opened up tremendous opportunity for women. I I know I talked earlier about educational and professional opportunities, but it also means women live longer. Their children live longer. Their kids are more likely to go to school. It means, frankly, that, that men who are not involved in teen pregnancies also do better, right? They wind up more financially stable, more likely to graduate high school, more likely to graduate college. So it, it has had, I mean, contraception has had huge net benefits, not just for American women, but for women the world over. And I think these are incredibly well demonstrated in things like maternal, maternal and infant mortality rates. To me, the fundamental problem is not the sexual revolution itself, and it's, it's certainly not feminism, it's misogyny, it's unfinished feminism. When I think about things like hookup mm-hmm. culture, mm-hmm. do I think it's an inherently bad thing for young women or young men to have multiple sexual partners and explore their sexual preferences and likes and dislikes? No, I, I, I don't think that's a bad thing. I think it becomes a bad thing in practice when young men have much greater social power and much greater sexual power when young women don't have the space and what a writer named Jacqueline Friedman, I believe, calls uh, a kind of humanizing ethic of sex to treat each other with dignity, even if it's a relatively casual sexual arrangement, to have a, a dignified, respectful mutually pleasurable encounter. To me, that's what's missing. Mm. Uh, It's not the number of sexual partners a person has, how people proceed through their sexual lives. And to me, that's not really the fault of feminists. It's, It's frankly what feminists have been working very hard to push against. I guess I wonder if it's the result of misogyny or as you call it, unfinished feminism, or if it's the result of something deeper, which is nature and the fact that men and women are wired differently when it comes to sex and casual sex? The answer is, I don't know. I don't know what men and women are like in a perfect state of nature. I don't think anyone does. What I do know is that human beings are social creatures and we do act and react based on what our peers are doing, based on what other people in our social universes are doing. And the way that we have sex is also reflective of our culture, of our place in the world, of the time in which we are living. Human sexuality over centuries has been pretty widely variable, right? It's not like men have always been this way sexually and women are this other way, and that's universal across time and space and culture. It's it's not. So uh, while there certainly may be some biological component to how men approach sex and how women approach sex, and I'm not saying that that in no universe exists, we just don't know where biology begins and where socialization ends. 
And we frankly don't even know the degree to which socialization influences our biological reactions, right? I mean, these the brain and the body are not separate parts. And I think what, what we have seen is that feminism and feminist norms around sex and sexuality and around human relationships and relationships between men and women generally have pretty radically, and I think for the better, changed those relationships, right? We've seen domestic violence uh, being much, much less acceptable than it has really ever been, and rates of domestic violence going significantly down over the past several decades. And I, and I do credit feminism with that. We have seen workplace relationships between women and men, obviously uh, still imperfectly, but wildly changing from where they were in, let's say, the 1920s or even 1950s or 60s. And so I do think that we can shift the way that men and women interact sexually, and I think we can shift it pretty radically. Louise, casual sex, net positive or net negative for women? And I would love if you could pick up on what Jill is saying, because I imagine there's some agreement here around the notion that we are social beings and the expectations we have around sex are influenced by our culture and the social cohort that we're a part of. So net negative... It's my, it's my opening gambit. Um, so, yeah, of course I agree with Jill that we are, we are heavily influenced by our culture. I wouldn't bother writing books and, and campaigning if I didn't think that we were potentially malleable as, as people. Having said that, it is true that we see variation in human sexuality across time and place. It's also true that we see ranges, right? Like, it isn't the case that all possible configurations of, of like male and female relationships have been tried everywhere and anywhere. Like there are patterns. Okay. And I think that it is possible to see in the research, which is becoming increasingly sophisticated, identifying some of the ways in which there is a biological role. I mean, so obviously there is a biological role on the physical level in the sense that women are the ones who get pregnant and therefore also suffer all the, the consequences of taking hormonal birth control, which can be really dire for some women. And also that we are smaller and weaker than men considerably. I mean, particularly in terms of upper body strength. So that in any like heterosexual encounter, the woman is almost always going to be at a physical disadvantage. So obviously that has huge social ramifications in terms of our, our risk of violence. So there's the physical stuff. There's also the psychological stuff. And that's that's more difficult to talk about because it is, it's sketchier. There are a lot of outliers. It's influenced by culture, of course it is. But I think that there are various traits that differ on average between men and women. And the one that I am most interested in for the purposes of my argument in my book is what psychologists call sociosexuality. So that's your desire to have sexual variety in your life, basically. It's not quite the same thing as sex drive. It's your desire to have like a variety of partners and experiment sexually and so on. And I don't think any listeners will be surprised to hear that men are on average higher in sociosexuality than women are, and that that holds true across cultures. There's been a lot of work done on this. And of course, there are outliers. But at the population level, that difference is quite stark. It's the reason, for instance, why men watch a lot more porn than women do, that sex buyers are almost exclusively male, because obviously, these are the people who are at that very, like, furthermost tail in terms of a desire for sexual variety. And I think that the problem with trying to encourage women, I think the phrase you used, Barry, was encourage women to have sex like men. That is exactly the right phrase, I think. The kind of sexual liberation narrative does encourage women to sort of enjoy all the fruits of sexual liberation that men have always enjoyed to be able to have casual sex, you know, watch porn, buy sex, do all this stuff. 
And I think the the problem we come up against with a culture of casual sex, right, not talking necessarily about what individuals choose to do, but a culture in which this is the expected thing, where in particular, you know, women particularly in, in certain like subcultures within the West, the expectation is that you you go through this on the route to a committed relationship. Even though the vast majority of women do say that they eventually want to have a committed relationship, hookup culture is seen as a rite of passage. And mm-hmm. it is particularly on university campuses, increasingly in schools, is considered to be the norm. And I think the problem with having that as a norm is that women so obviously lose out, right? We suffer all of the physical risks, all of the discomfort. I mean, women orgasm so rarely in casual sex, right? Compared with men, just, you know, I can't remember the numbers off the top of my head, but the difference is stark. And women want it less on average as well. And I think that when you list it like that, the idea that a culture of casual sex could be of benefit to women as a class, I think just falls apart. Jill, I wonder what you make of that. I mean, I definitely grew up in a context where the narrative was very much like, this is how you figure out what you like. This is how you find yourself. This is how you get to know like what your tastes are, what your kinks are. You got to like hook up with lots of different people, maybe of different genders in my case and so on. And the idea was this was ultimately good. This was about self-actualization. This was about exploration and healthy risk-taking and In the end, if I'm honest and I look back at like where a huge amount of my time went, it went to talking friends off ledges who weren't hearing back from the people that they hooked up with the night before. And I guess I wonder what you think of Louise's argument that on the whole, many of the arguments that we were sort of sold don't actually benefit women, but implicitly end up redounding to the benefit of men. Oh, I'm not sure who has been making the argument that everyone should be going out having tons of casual sex, no matter what it is they prefer. I mean, that it's certainly not feminists who have been advocating for that. I think what feminists have advocated for, and what I would certainly advocate for, is greater sexual freedom and individual decision-making. So that the people who do want to go out and have lots of casual sex can do so without social stigma and shame. And, and, And that's very, very new. And it's frankly still relegated to a pretty small number of progressive communities within the U.S. I mean, in much of the U.S., having casual sex with a number of partners is is very much not socially acceptable and certainly the case in much of the world still. So I'm not sure I'd pin the blame for that on feminists. You know, again, to me, the sort of heart of the question is what does a positive cultural sexual ethic look like? And I think the pre-feminist sexual ethic, which put women in the position of always being the kind of sexual breaks, right? The people who had to say no, who had to be the center of a family's morality, of a culture's morality, and that paid the price if they sexually transgressed, was a very, very unhealthy model. And I often feel in these conversations, we get stuck looking at, okay, do we want to go back to that past model or do we want Mm -hmm. what we have? And Mm -hmm. to me, that just really evinces a a pretty significant lack of creativity. And one thing that feminist movements, I think, have been pretty good at, and it's created a lot of infighting within feminist movements, is trying to imagine what would a better sexual ethic look like. And that's how you got some, you know, pretty wild ideas in the 70s that we can still hearken back to. But Yeah, things like 
say, political lesbianism. Right. Political lesbianism, um, abstinence as this uh, kind of feminist uh, resistance. I think think that's coming back in a big way. And, you know, I think those are all good and not not things I would choose, but really interesting debates and conversations to have. You know, but to me, our, our only choices are not what we have now and what we had then. There is, you know, a, a third option and probably a 10th and 25th option, you know, which would be a sexual culture in which people have maximal freedom from stigma, from sexual shame, you know, where not just consent is prioritized, although obviously consent is important, but also pleasure and treating other people like human beings and taking sex out of this kind of very old mold where women are supposed to be kind of moral guides for what sexuality is and isn't supposed to be. We're the ones that are supposed to say, typically supposed to say no, but also the ones that then give permission for sex to continue. And it's men and men's pleasure and men's idea of what sex is and should look like and should feel like that dictates our understanding of sexuality. That's where I think we're stuck now. And I don't think it's our only option. I hear the main difference between the two of you as Jill saying, the problem is, is that we don't have the right culture. We don't have the right ethic. We don't have sort of a fully realized feminism that would lead us to a healthy sexual culture in the West. And I think, Louise, what you're saying is it's much deeper than that. It's not about sort of layering on a better version of a sexual ethic or a feminist ethic because that would be asking us to override our fundamental nature. Am I characterizing that right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I, do, you know, I do agree with a lot of what Jill is saying. But then I don't actually blame feminists for this, right? I mean, I think that sex-positive feminism is a very flawed ideology. And I would say that it's more widespread than just a handful of progressive enclaves, you know. I mean, there are some differences between the UK and the US, but this is very, very normative now for Gen Z, right? With the, with the exception of some, like, religious communities that we know that these are, these are shrinking across the board. I think that there is a collective recognition among I think pretty much all feminists and a bunch of non-feminists as well, that there is a problem, that a culture of casual sex isn't necessarily making women in particular happy. But then we we reach disagreements about exactly why and exactly what the solution might be. And I think that the solution that is very often offered, and I think Jill was gesturing towards, is the idea that we need more freedom, that the sexual liberation project was a great idea and it just has never quite been completed. And then we have to keep on down that road and eventually we'll get to a stage where all of these problems melt away. And I think the reason that I don't agree with that and I don't think we should just keep kind of pressing the freedom lever again and again and with the expectation that things are going to improve is because we are, the, the playing field is not even, right? Well, we're, we're dealing with such profound sexual asymmetry on a physical and a psychological level the phrase that I borrow in my book is um, freedom for the pike is death for the minnows, right? If you're, you know, the truth of the matter is that human sexuality is not always good and pro-social. Human sexuality is often dark and ugly and destructive, right? And if you are freeing everyone to be kind of whatever they want to be in the terms of their sexual selves, and if the only structure you have in place to protect against harm is the consent framework, which I think is a really flawed one. I imagine we might get onto when we talk more about porn. Then I think what you're opening yourself up to is exploitation. And I think the problem is that it is all very well to say that individuals have choice. Of course, individuals have choice. You know, at the end of the day, we, we all of us have free will. 
but those choices are, are made within contexts. And when you're talking, for instance, about a culture where the expectation is that you will have sex on a first date, it is that much more difficult for a woman to say no to that, particularly if she's young, right? Young people we know, male and female, are, are so much more susceptible to group pressure than any other age group. And to say, oh, well, she's making a choice. I mean, the, I, I just think that that is to ignore the extent to which all of these choices are networked. And, you know, sex is fundamentally a relational activity. We do it with other people. We depend on other people for, our, you know, all of our sexual experiences. And that means that we are dependent on other people's choices and dependent on the way that that feeds into the, the, the you know, it is more than the sum of its parts is basically what I'm trying to say about a sexual culture. Well, speaking of hitting the freedom lever, I don't think there's a better segue into talking about porn and sex work. Um, simple question. How do you view the effects of porn and its, its, it's hard to even capture its abundance and its variety on women in the 21st century? Jill, let's start with you. Like everything else, I think it's complicated. <clears throat> there are positives and there are, <laughs> there's a very long list of negatives. Um, <laughs> porn is actually this really, really tough thing to discuss within feminist circles because I think a lot of us have this hangover from the 1980s pornography wars, right? Where you had some segments of the feminist movement who were very much trying not just to criticize porn, but also to ban it. And then you had other feminists who kind of in reaction to that were defending not just the right to publish porn, but also pornography itself. And it, it is essentially created this dynamic with, within the feminist movement that it's really, really tricky territory to talk about. And, and this is one place where I, I think I will kind of happily critique the movement itself, which is a you know big and multifaceted thing. But I think we've done a really incomplete job of talking about porn holistically. And so, you know, I guess I'll say, you know, taking the sort of legality question off the table. Yeah. I think porn should be legal <laughs> and that we shouldn't, the government shouldn't be censoring, you know, for the most part, with the exception of things like child pornography, what is going on the internet and how people are expressing themselves. That said, porn is mass media. And the same way that feminists critique movies and music and news outlets and the way that women are portrayed and both what that reflects about our culture and also what it teaches us. Some of that is happening with regard to porn, but but not, in my opinion, nearly enough. And the reality of a lot of porn is that it is incredibly violent, incredibly misogynistic, incredibly racist, is reflecting back something not great about our culture and frankly is, I think, reinforcing and arguably teaching particularly young people who don't have a lot of sexual or relational experience some pretty nasty messages about what sex is and certainly about what a woman's role is in sex. So I think there's quite a bit, I think there's quite a bit of good that porn has done as well. I think it, a lot of people watch porn, a lot of people enjoy it. There's feminist porn out there. There's all kinds of ways in which porn is an important uh, sexual outlet for people. And also, there are all kinds of ways in which porn is a force for misogyny. Louise, what do you think we should do about the fact that for a lot of people, especially a lot of young men, porn is essentially the first ideas that they're watching porn is sort of like 
you know, it used to be that you would have to like steal a Playboy and maybe you would see a tit and that was the craziest thing in the world. And now I can go on my phone and pull up like unspeakable acts that now I hear just like from people that I know in Gen Z, like the expectations of what young men think is normative sexual behavior is just radically different than it was even in my generation. So what do you think we should do about it? Jill says, obviously, shouldn't be banned, shouldn't be made illegal, should be criticized. What say you? I'm definitely willing to go further on a legislative front than I think Jill is. I mean, the the big exception you make space for, of course, is child porn, which I think we are all in agreement that child porn does far too much harm to the children involved in its production. And it also has far too much of a destructive effect on society writ large. And we also accept the fact that banning it doesn't entirely eradicate it and that criminal justice systems are faced with a really difficult task in trying to actually enforce these laws and very often don't. So we're all agreed on that. The question is where we set the line, right? So I think that the there's almost no one who thinks that we shouldn't be regulating the porn industry at all. I'm definitely much more willing to come down much harder than we have previously. I think the time has come. I mean, so, so know, what, the, what would that practically mean? So I think that, I mean, I'm, I obviously the, the UK system is the one I know best. One of the yeah. errors that we've made in the UK to date has been to focus very much on possession of extreme porn. So there's like a surprising amount of porn that is criminal in the UK. So hmm. images that seem to show someone being killed or life-threatening violence being used, bestiality, necrophilia, obviously child sexual abuse images, all this stuff. But the focus has been on the possession And the problem with that is that it's extraordinarily difficult to prove. And I think that the mistake that we've made has not been focusing enough on the platforms, right? Because no one knows the the names of the guys who own MindGeek, right? We know Jack Dorsey's name. We know Mark Zuckerberg's name. The people who run MindGeek are just as powerful as any of any of the the owners of, and, and CEOs of the major platforms, social media platforms, but they have somehow managed to escape censure, um, and have committed the most. Hor- you know, we know how much child porn is actually on Pornhub. This is you know this has been revealed by the New York Times among other places. We know that laws like the ones in the UK are flagrantly broken all the time, and I think there has been a real squeamishness about reckoning with this within the feminist movement. So I I work on a campaign called We Can't Consent to This, which documents cases in the UK where women have been killed and their killers have claimed that they consented to violence as part of rough sex. And we started the campaign because we... How how common is that, though? That well, would seem like a vanishingly rare phenomenon. It's becoming more common, was the thing that Fiona McKenzie, who founded it, observed. So we've found more than 60 cases in the UK there are many, very many more cases worldwide. And it's really a phenomenon of this century. It's something that starts cropping up from 2000 onwards and becomes more and more common as a defence strategy. And what's really disturbing is that it works. You know, in about half of cases, men are able to get reduced sentences or able to get off on manslaughter charges instead of murder by using this defence and basically claiming this dead woman who can't speak for herself consented to it because she loved it. And this, I think, is one of the examples where we see porn having a direct effect outside of people's bedrooms and outside of people's smartphones. I mean, it is infamously difficult to to measure a lot of this stuff, to know exactly what effect it's having on on the mind. There's no kind of double-blind trial available to us. Mm-hmm. We have to just be dealing with natural experiments all the time. 
But I think this is a really good, this is a really, really good example of seeing this play out where the defenders of, say, strangulation porn or choking porn, as it's often known, choking content used to be so niche, right? It was a niche within a niche within the BDSM community. Your, your, you know, your Playboy mags of the 60s would never show material like that. Like it was impossible to get hold of. Now it's on the front page of every porn platform in the world. Right. Mm-hmm. It is so routine. It's even, you know, you, you can come across it on social media. We've heard a lot from uh, young women and young men who come across it just organically on Instagram, whatever, that's supposed to be suitable for 13 year olds. This has flooded the culture, this kind mm-hmm. of content, which is, you know, technically illegal in the UK because it, it should be illegal to have porn which shows, appears to show someone being being having like lethal violence used against them and yet nevertheless it is is absolutely everywhere and I'm sorry to say it gets defended in you know women's magazines I have a I have a stack of clippings of egregious articles about how in like articles intended for women young women in particular about how to experiment with breath play you know obviously with consent etc but the nature of strangulation is such that actually it is much more risky than most people realize it's much more liable to lead to injury than most people realise. And also we're seeing it, the fact that courts and police and lawyers and juries and defendants are all accepting this this narrative increasingly that women seek out lethal violence, I think tells us how far we've come. And I mean, the sex wars of the 1980s are sort of as nothing, right? Like the Radfems lost that battle, right? But they were dealing with they were prescient in all sorts of ways and they were admirable in all sorts of ways, but they couldn't have predicted exactly what would happen with the internet and the effect that this would have on porn and the fact that this has just supercharged everything that was wrong and every, you know, feminist critique of the porn industry is now a thousand times more true because this is online and it's a completely different beast. Beyond the question of legality, I guess I'm wondering culturally what you both think as as women, about the way we should be talking about porn culturally. Here's what I mean. Like, I feel like the the common view that I'm surrounded by, at least, is like, I guess what you would call the sex positive view. Like, some people like breath work or choking. Some people like anal. Some people like this. It's all good. They're all sort of like equally valid choices. And the choice to watch porn or not watch porn, you know, it's sort of like a value neutral choice. Should the attitude of women or let's even say feminists be no, like porn on balance is is not a good and not something that we should be non-judgmental about? Like, is it kind of time to maybe bring back a little bit of stigma or shame? I hate those words. <laughs> I hate those things, I think. But sometimes I'm like, maybe there's a place for them around this category. What do you think about that, Jill? I think it would be a mistake to bring back stigma or shame around porn generally. I do think there's plenty of room for critique and discussion about what we're seeing in porn, what it means about us, what it's teaching young people. And I think that those conversations have to happen in tandem with conversations around how we're thinking about sex and sexuality as a culture, right? Porn doesn't operate in a vacuum. It's not like there's some porn overlord who's creating all of this stuff <laughs> and then teaching us what we should, you know, and, and then we're consuming it. You know, it's, it's, it's cyclical. It feeds into the culture and the culture feeds back in, into what porn creators are making. And so I think unless we reckon with really deep-seated sexual shame 
deep cultural misogyny, this, you know, and this is, I'm talking about this from a very American perspective, but, you know, a very kind of Christian purity forward sexual culture that has been the reality in the United States for most of our existence. And regardless of what we're hearing at college, you know, I went to NYU, Barry, I think you went to Barnard or Columbia. Columbia, um, yeah. You know, regardless of what we're hearing at kind of elite urban institutions. Yes. <clears throat> what a lot of girls, especially, but boys too, are, are hearing as children, as teenagers in their high schools around the United States is not go out and sexually experiment. Porn is great. Do whatever you want. What a lot of them are hearing is sex is bad and dangerous. It should only happen in the context of marriage. Girls and women are the sexual breaks and are the people that are supposed to police the kind of unlimited and unending sexuality of men and boys. That's the job of women and girls. It's also the fault of women and girls if something goes wrong and they get pregnant, in which case now in many U.S. states, they have no option to end that pregnancy. And that's what kids are hearing in school. And then they're going home to a universe of unlimited porn. Right. Right. So, or they're turning on, you know, euphoria. <laughs> like it's right. Just, exactly. It's the entire, so, or, or listening to whores in this house. Like, I'm sorry. It, to me, it seems like everything in the culture is the opposite of what you just described as like maybe a message coming from a pastor in church. But the entire mainstream culture is the opposite messaging. I think that they're messaging that's essentially two sides of the same coin, which is overwhelming kind of male sexual dominance and this uh, hyper focus on women as uh, sexual objects, right? Women as physical stand-ins for sex itself and an understanding of sex and sexuality is primarily about male prerogative and, and male pleasure. And I think you see that both in things like abstinence-only education and I think you see that same ideology in violent mainstream porn. And so I do think these are interrelated dynamics and we can't really separate one from the other. And so I think until we can really root in culturally and address why it is that we see sex the way that we do and how that manifests in these kind of two extremes, right? I'm not sure that we're going to get to a point where we can see things like better pornography, where we can see a more uh, kind of humane and respectful version of sex. And I worry that when our reaction to things like porn is, okay, let's try to shut it down, which doesn't at this point seem particularly realistic and I would argue not particularly helpful, or let's move back to this very Christian, very kind of conservative old view of sex, which also shames and stigmatizes and again, puts sexual responsibility primarily on the shoulders of women. I think that we're reinforcing a problem and a dynamic instead of actually addressing it and shifting it and fixing it. Louise, I want to ask you about the big question to me here, which is the role of choice and freedom. You know, like, do we want to live in a culture where a woman has the freedom to be in a porn and, you know, be strangled? Or do we want to punish her from making that choice? I don't think I want to punish her for making that choice. But I also don't think that freedom is like the preeminent value. I think that freedom must be balanced against other values. And I think that's the error that's brought us here ideologically in many ways. What are the other values that freedom needs to be balanced with in your view? <sighs> Respect, dignity, love, 
you know I think that we are all in agreement that these are virtues the question is how we balance them against everything else mm-hmm. I mean going back to something that Jill said at the top about there's no sort of big big porn guy who's just making it all and like using us like like puppets I mean of course that's completely true but I also think that I wonder if this is partly coming from a UK US difference right that I think that the UK and US feminism looks quite different at the moment it's much more common I think in the UK to hear really strident critiques of the porn industry for instance and I think that that may be a consequence of the fact that we don't have a Christian right really you know maybe a very small marginal you know group who basically have no political influence but we've never really been forced to focus on the on the fight against the Christian right in this country not for a very long time and I think that that has to some extent you know, been a blessing in obvious ways, but has also been a blessing in a less obvious way in that it has freed us to be more ideologically, like, creative. And it means, I think, that there isn't this constant need to say, oh, but of course Christian purity culture is worse. Yes, exactly, because, like, yes, fine, we agree. I mean, it's worth pointing out the fact that Christian purity culture is not the only alternative. It might be the one that is currently the most powerful alternative in the US. I mean, there have been very, very many different kind of arrangements of sexual ethics across human history, many of which have been bad for women in all sorts of ways that are entirely different from the ways in which Christian purity culture is bad for women. And I think that one of the ways in which the left in general and feminism in particular has really dropped the ball on thinking about porn is not having that capitalist critique of it. Because actually, maybe it's not one big guy who's kind of designing it all, but we are talking about huge global corporations who are vastly rich and who are determining the sexual lives of the next generation, who are treating children essentially like guinea pigs, right? Yes, there are a lot of content creators, but there is also, the platform has designers, there are algorithms, there are ways in which certain things are are prioritised and not in terms of what viewers are seeing. And the whole setup is designed to create profit. The porn should be understood as a super stimuli in the sense that it is entirely designed to arouse the human body. It has, you know, and it is so much more arousing than anything you'll experience in the wild intentionally. You log on to these these sites and everything is designed from, you know, images, sounds, whatever, to arouse you as quickly as possible. Something that's interesting about that is that sexual arousal has the effect of suppressing the disgust response for kind of mm. obvious reasons if you're gonna have sex with someone you have to like not be gross you don't want to proximity <laughs> to them yeah um and does disgust response is very closely linked to moral intuition which means mm. that when people are really aroused they're not as good at making fine-grained moral judgments so what you'll often hear from people who use porn particularly compulsively mm. is they'll they'll go into these sites they'll watch stuff that they kind of know is terrible but also turns them on they'll orgasm and they'll push the laptop away and they're like oh my god Particularly women Mm. will often experience this. They'll watch stuff which they know is like seriously unethical, but they kind of can't help themselves because because this is the nature of the product. It is designed to hijack our impulses in that way. There's this line I use in the book, the nature of tech increasingly coming to dominate every part of our lives, including the most intimate part of our lives, is that we all end up either above the algorithm or below the algorithm. Mm. And I think with the porn industry, we are all below the algorithm, even if we don't use it ourselves. And I really do think that feminists should not watch porn, like full stop. Feminists, moreover, should make their relationships with men conditional on those men not watching porn, for real. I think that it is such a wildly unethical product. Like, to, to my mind, it is comparable to products made with slave labour or something like that. I think to, to knowingly put your money towards 
a product that you know has that degree of destructive impact on vulnerable people, I think is terrible. And if it takes shame to do that, then, you know, I mean, I don't think that we feel squeamish about saying that people should feel, be, you know, buying, say, uh, you know, clothing made by people who've been trafficked should why be stigmatized. Does, why does that feel, I mean, it seems like a purely feminist argument, really, and and almost like refreshingly so. And yet, when I think about it in an American context, it feels like I can maybe think of like two public feminists that would be willing to make that argument. And perhaps it's because we're living in a country, like you said, Louise, with a Christian right and with a Supreme Court that just repealed Roe. And I think probably the fear would be like anything that smells of the idea that it could strengthen that movement would be something that feminists would shy away from. I think that's right. Yeah, I think that's the dynamic. And it's a really unfortunate dynamic because it means that you basically end up with you know, the left letting off the hook, one of the most exploitative industries you could imagine. Yeah, I I don't think that's the whole of the dynamic. I think that's certainly part of it, right? But I think there are, I don't think I know that there are a lot of feminists who would make a very affirmative case in favor of porn. Maybe not in favor of every single thing that you're going to find on Pornhub, right? But who would make a case in favor of human beings being able to access imagery of people having sex, right? Which human beings have created and attempted to access for much of human history. Um, you know, I don't think the the visualizing of people having sex, the visualizing of things that are intended to create sexual arousal is inherently bad or wrong. And I, I think you would even have a hard time, I would have a hard time making the case that the totality of the porn industry is bad and wrong. I think a lot of it can certainly be exploitative. I agree that there needs to be more transparency and who's behind these companies. I totally agree that kind of capitalist critique is long overdue of the porn industry, but I don't think what's holding back feminists from critiquing porn is is the religious right. Um, That's, it's one component, but a lot of feminists watch porn. A lot of women watch porn. A lot of women enjoy porn. A lot of women make porn. A lot of women enjoy porn with their partners. And that- A lot of women are making, you know, $100,000 a month on OnlyFans and living their best life, they would say. Right, exactly. And, you know, look, am I going to make the argument that having an OnlyFans account is the pinnacle of feminist achievement? I mean, no, I'm I'm, I'm not the person who's going to make the case for that. But I am going to make the case that that woman should not be subject to cultural shame. You know, and, and frankly, that the downsides of cracking down on porn, of attaching shame and stigma to human sexuality and to porn in particular, is much more potentially dangerous than what I would argue is is a better strategy, which is critiquing porn as it exists, critiquing it from both a feminist perspective um, and a leftist perspective, and attempting to make a culture that is less violently misogynist so you don't see that reflected to the degree that you do in pornography. I think this impulse to simply shut down things that we think are bad or even that we think are morally wrong is quite a dangerous one. There's a lot of stuff I think is morally wrong that I find morally reprehensible that I also don't think should be illegal. And I think that that is a very important line that feminists in the U.S. at least typically do draw. 
and I don't, I, I disagree with the premise that porn is universally so morally atrocious that it's unfeminist to watch it or it's unfeminist to have a partner who watches it. Louise, have you banned your husband from watching porn? Of course. Long before we were married. <laughs> well, no, it's just like a fundamental values thing, right? I mean, I just think the nature of it is that whatever kind of feminist label you want to put on a video, you can't actually look at a video and know that people are consenting. You might think that they consented at the time. You can't know that they're still consenting. The nature of these videos going out into the world is that you can't get them back, which is why revenge porn is so incredibly destructive to people's psyches because you can't get it back. You know, I just do not think that a truly ethical porn product exists and particularly given the fact that the nature of the product is that it is it warps the brains but the brain particularly the brains of young people it teaches you to regard sex as a spectator sport after the break was telling women like me we can have it all a good thing or a bad thing stay with us Let's move on to women in the workplace. I really am confused at this point about what is second wave, what is third wave. I really don't know what they mean anymore. All I know is that I grew up in retrospect on lean-in feminism. I grew up thinking women should have it all, could have it all. We could look as good as Sheryl Sandberg, have kids, you know, secure the bag, all of it. And in many ways, like that version of feminism has worked out incredibly well for me and for many other women I know. You know, and if you look out into the world, you see more women CEOs, you see women on boards, you see women owning their own businesses, you see women billionaires. Louise, what is the downside to lean in feminism? That it is incompatible with motherhood. I mean, it's not a coincidence that the women who disproportionately make up those very tip-top spots in elite professions are disproportionately likely not to have had children. I think that the problem is that the whole system is kind of built on sand, basically. Like, it either depends on women not having children, which most women don't want to do, right? Like, I think that there are all sorts of really good reasons not to have children. The truth is that, you know, 80% roughly of women will end up having children more women than that would like to have children. And the idea of having it all is just fundamentally incompatible with that. I speak partly from experience as I have a 14 month old who's asleep upstairs right now. And it is so hard. It is just so, it is just so difficult to make the labor market and family life work together. And I think the blind spot in feminism on motherhood, not with in all strains of feminism, but, um, you know, in general, there's, I can't remember the, the figure exactly I quote in the book, but the, the proportion of articles written by professors of gender studies that, that even mention motherhood is amazing. It's like single digits. It's, it, it is a, this like vast area of female life, which has basically been neglected. And I think the reason for that is that if freedom is your preeminent value, if the aim of the game is freedom, motherhood is completely incompatible with that. I have a friend who had a baby a few months after I did who said that um, the only thing that would restrict your freedom more than having a newborn is going to prison. I'm sorry to tell you this, Barry, when your wife was pregnant, but... (laughs) I'm a month away from my jail time. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. It's true. It's also wonderful. You know, like it's both at the same time. And 
you know, the truth is that if your unit of analysis is the individual and if your whole political philosophy is orientated around maximising the autonomy of the individual, there is no space for motherhood in that because mothers aren't really individuals and infants definitely aren't really individuals because infants depend entirely for every single need on at least one other person. Uh, the phrase that Donald Winnicott, the, the child psychoanalyst, used was, uh, there's no such thing as a baby, there's only a baby and someone, right? Mm. And normally that someone is the baby's mother for obvious, you know, biological reasons. And I think that the individualist analysis works, basically, if you cut out the beginning of life, you cut out anything, you know, any era, period in your life when you're caring for anyone else, you cut out the end of life when you're elderly and disabled, you just exclude disabled people from the picture entirely and everyone is basically just like a frat boy with no responsibilities. But actually that's not what the world is like at all. And I think that if we are going to reckon with motherhood as a, as a feminist movement, then we have to let go of individualism. Jill, I think that there's a big tension happening, certainly in conversations that I'm a part of, but I think more broadly in the culture about you know, what, and, and this became even more clear during the pandemic where it became obvious that a lot of women were still bearing the brunt of what we traditionally think of as women's work in the household. And I think that that has made this debate sort of even more sharp and urgent, which is, should the feminist fight at this stage be for parity? You know, the same amount of computer engineers, the same amount of computer programmers and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, which to me feels like was the goal 10 years ago? Or should the should the push be for maybe a more radical proposal, like compensating women for the labor that they do at home or fighting for an economic system in the States? And it's strange because you hear this argument being made by people sort of on the Elizabeth Warren left, but also on the Josh Hawley right, that we should have an economic structure in America where families are able to subsist on a single income. Where do you fall on, on that debate? Where do you think feminists should be pushing for? Is it for parity and a sort of sharper version or, or maybe a more fulsome version of lean-in feminism? Or is it something different than that, which is about a different kind of structure? Well, it's neither of the two options <laughs> that you just offered. Uh, to me, it is rethinking how do we want to structure society, our workplaces, our families, and our communities. And the reality is that the single earner structure, nuclear family structure, is largely a historical blip. That is not the way that families have been organized for most of human history, where you had single families, nuclear families living together in relative isolation with men going out and earning the bread and women at home full-time raising children. That I think is a particularly unhealthy way to structure a society. One of the ways in which men have been able to, quote unquote, have it all, although I always kind of take umbrage at that, <laughs> that phrasing because I don't think anyone uh, has ever been able to have it all, all at once, no matter what. But the way that men were able to have a family and a career is that they had a wife at home who was essentially taking care of the entire family side of things. And I think where we, you know, again, I don't think this is the feminist movement going wrong. I think it's a feminist movement incomplete, is that we have given women more access to traditionally male spaces in the economic sphere, in the political sphere, in the social and public sphere, right? So we've sort of removed this barrier that was for a long time keeping women uh, very much in the private. What we haven't done 
is shore up the support system in the private that women have long provided for men, right? And this is particularly true in the U.S., although it's not exclusive to the U.S. So, you know, I could rattle off all the basic things that we don't offer working mothers, right? Whether that's paid leave or whether that's universal childcare, but those are very real barriers. And those are political choices that we are making that essentially does put all of the onus back on individual women, individual families to sort this out. And then we wonder, oh, why don't we have parity? And then the answer from some folks on the left and some folks on the right is like, well, just pay women to stay home. And I object to the idea that that's the only option. I think that we could really rethink how we structure our workplaces. We could rethink what obligations governments have to provide resources for families. You know, we could frankly rethink how we're putting together communities and what place children and child rearing have in them. You know, I think there is a universe in which having a child does not have to be isolating and constraining. I think there's a universe in which having a child could really remind someone of their civic and social connections that could be a tool for looking outward at connecting with others, at sharing responsibility for raising children in a society. I think all of that is possible. We just haven't created the structures to allow that to happen. And there's I think, tremendous debate within the feminist movement of how best to move forward on these questions. But it is overwhelmingly feminists who have pushed for things like paid parental leave, like universal childcare, for all of these tools that would help to not complete the feminist project, but at least move us forward. And so I certainly don't blame feminists for the fact that, you know, women, quote unquote, can't have it all. I blame the actors that have gotten in the way of, of feminist progress. Let's talk about men. I've been reading an early copy of a new book by Richard Reeves, and it's full of some incredibly sad statistics about how men and boys are faring these days. And here are just a few of them. For every 100 bachelor's degrees awarded to women, 74 are awarded to men. The wages of most men are lower today than they were in 1979, while women's wages have risen across the board. One in five fathers are not living with their children. And here's the saddest of all. Men account for almost three out of four deaths of despair, either from a suicide or an overdose. Now, there's a way to look at all the places where women are dominating men in terms of success, let's say in college admissions, college graduation rates, and say, hell yeah, women are winning and it's about time. They've never won before. But there's also a way of looking at these statistics and thinking, what are the unintended consequences? Jill, what do you make of these numbers and do they worry you? These numbers do worry me. I don't buy the line, though, that feminist progress has come at the expense of men. I I just don't think that's true. I think by many measures, men as well are much better off than they've been in the past. That said, of course, it is concerning, particularly the deaths of despair statistics, that many men do seem to be quite lost. And I think one dynamic that is at play here is this question of purpose and meaning, which most people seek in their lives somehow. And for women, historically and and still, motherhood has been one path to that, right? So 
even if you couldn't access paid work, if you couldn't access a job that felt meaningful, you could have this maternal role that would give you some social status, that would give you some some sense that your life was being invested in something bigger than yourself. And thanks to the advent of the feminist movement, you've seen fewer women having children by choice, most women having far fewer children to invest more resources in the few that they do have. And I think that that derives from being able to find meaning elsewhere. I think what you've seen from men is that men don't similarly divine that kind of meaning, derive that kind of meaning from fatherhood as kind of a primary identity source. Hmm. I think many men have historically derived that sense of meaning from being a breadwinner, which is such a, a kind of fundamental component part of masculinity and being a good man for a lot of men. And when men no longer have that, I do think a lot of them struggle to figure out, well, what's, what's my purpose? What's my point here? I don't think you can turn around and blame feminism for the fact that men no longer have total social and economic and political dominance. Um, sorry, you, you can certainly blame feminism for the fact that men no longer have total social, economic, and political <laughs> yes, dominance. That's fine with me. Absolutely blame feminism for that. But I don't think you can then blame feminism for the fact that men react to that in pretty antisocial and unhealthy ways. Uh, You know, to me, there's pretty ripe space here for men to do quite a bit of social and cultural work to figure out what are other ways to be a good man in this culture? Where are other places that I can find meaning? How can men expand the idea of what it means to be male? We've seen the idea of what it means to be a woman radically expand in the past couple decades, right? You know, everything down from the way that we dress to the kinds of jobs that we have to how we spend our time. We've seen what it means to be male shift far, far, far less. Hmm. And so I think that that's work that, that men need to do. And frankly, some of that is organizing work. Some of it's political work. It's certainly social and cultural work. But that to me is something closer to a solution than just saying, well, women have challenged this male monopoly on power. And therefore, when men react badly to that, that's the fault of feminists. Louise, I'd love to hear you on sort of the connection you make between the sexual revolution and the crisis of meaning that's clearly so prevalent among men. One other thing I just wanted to throw in the mix here is, you know, you've said that, and you argue in your book that the sexual revolution privileges sort of the interests and desires of men over women. But I'm struck by the fact that a lot of men in that scenario that you lay out just aren't having sex, right? There's this crazy data point that the number of sexless men between 18 and 30 years old went from 10% to 30% between 2010 and 2020. These are men who report having no sex in the past year. So, you know, if sexual liberation or the sexual revolution has been so great for men, how do you explain that? Sorry, I know that's a lot, so choose anything you like. Um, I say that it's a subset of men who have benefited from the new sexual culture. Um, specifically high status attractive. The hottest guys at the top? Basically, the yeah. Yeah, the chats. I um, I start the book with a little uh, vignette describing the lives of Hugh Hefner and Marilyn Monroe who were born in the same year and obviously 
you know, were both icons of the sexual revolution, had vastly different experiences of it. You know, Hefner is an example of someone who loved the sexual revolution, you know, had every kind of personal reason to push for things like the pill to be made available to unmarried women and so on. I mean, he did end up being a pretty pathetic figure at the end. I think that the Playboy life has a shelf life, but like it's great while it lasts for these guys. I mean, I think they are the kind of the unambiguous winners. Men in general, probably the majority of men, less so. I mean, you're, you're totally right, Barry, that we've seen the um, the sex recession, which has become the sex depression. The cause of it seems to be the fact that people are not getting married or are getting married much later. And married people have a lot more sex than unmarried people. You have this slightly perverse thing going on simultaneously where you've got young people having more casual sex and also having less sex, which just like appears paradoxical, but it isn't because what they're doing is that when they have sex, which is rarely, it is more likely to be casual. They're not having the committed relationships. They're certainly not, you know, they're not getting married in their early 20s or whatever, as was routine for my grandparents' generation. So, yeah, so this this question about how men are faring, clearly in terms of the educational and work outcomes for men, it is a, it is a pessimistic picture. I think that that has some... Is, is partly attributable to the feminist movement. I think it is more largely attributable to changes in the economy. I mean, the nature yes. of work now is that... Is this, you know, sitting at a computer and clicking-clacking, like you mentioned. Yeah, that, of which that, we're all members. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the most high-status men are small, little, wire... Like, the physical <laughs> labor is not area, required. Right? Yeah. yeah, of course. It's, it's crazy, and, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I um, yeah, I read a column about this for the New Statesman. The the physical difference between the Mark Zuckerbergs, I've mentioned him a second time in this conversation for some reason, you know, these kind of weedy, nerdy guys who are vastly wealthy because of, the, you know, the fact that they were born at the right time and did really well within tech, um, compared with masculine heroes of previous era who would be doing manual work. Like I wrote a column about coal mining um, and the fact that coal mining makes you really buff. Whereas now the only thing that will make you really buff is going to the gym and spending vast sums of money on like a CrossFit membership, whatever. The nature of masculinity has just changed utterly because the nature of the economy has changed utterly. And it, it does mean as well that now we've, we're very often operating in workplaces where we're interacting a lot more with the opposite sex. People in the past used to have much more homosocial lives. You know, you wouldn't interact as much with members of the opposite sex who weren't your kin. Um, whereas now routinely we have very kind of gender neutral workplaces. We're all doing much the same kind of work. If you're on contraception, you can delay your childbearing. You, like there's, you, you are almost indistinguishable from the other worker units, you know, in the next cubicle. So it does, I think that's one of the things actually that has fueled something I write about in the book, which is the kind of underestimation of the differences between the sexes. I think it comes from the fact that we are living a kind of a gender neutral life, but it's one that's very much built on a kind of technological, a very fragile technological layer and I wonder if to some extent actually things I mean certainly things like porn for some men I think absolutely acts as compensation that if you are if you're living a life in which you are you feel humiliated by the fact that you can't earn a family wage that's what British socialists call I don't know if that's the American phrase for being able to live on a single income right the family wage is a thing of the past you can't necessarily get work you're the women and girls are doing better than you at school and university because, of course, the you know the average female temperament is so much better suited to sitting quietly on the mat and studying for your exams. And you know, women of like, we are flourishing in this environment that is actually really well suited to, at like 
traits at which women on average are, are strong. One more quick break, and we'll be back to talk about why some young women don't want to be feminists anymore. Stay with us. Let's talk about the backlash to feminism, and not just among the right, which could be a whole conversation, but sort of the backlash among women. According to recent polling in the UK, only one in five women describe themselves as feminists. In the US, it's 29% of women, and even some women I think of as feminist icons, like Dolly Parton, shy away from using the word. Jill, is that a misunderstanding about what feminism is and the fact that a woman like Megyn Kelly, let's say, who sort of famously doesn't identify as a feminist, but whose whole life is the result of feminism, maybe doesn't appreciate that? Same with Dolly Parton, for that matter. Or is it a genuine reaction to the substance of feminism that they're rejecting? I think there's a couple things going on in our moment of anti-feminist backlash. And I do think we are in a moment of anti-feminist yeah. backlash. But, you know, with, with regard to public opinion polling, a lot of women aren't feminists. And the definition mm-hmm. of feminism is not a woman in a position of power or a woman who is successful at her job, right? Feminism is a movement for the political, social, and economic liberation of women. And so Megyn Kelly, I would not consider Megyn Kelly a feminist either. So I'm glad she doesn't identify as one, even though she is a woman who is, you know, by any measure, quite successful, right? So a lot of women are active anti-feminists. So it's women who led the charge against suffrage in the United States, right? Mm-hmm. Um, before women won the right to vote, a you know, decade or two before, huge majorities of American women oppose women having the right to vote. So this idea that women should inherently be feminist just because of our gender has just never actually played out throughout you know, most of modern history. So that doesn't surprise me. I do think, though, that it's important to look at the moment that we're in as one of an anti-feminist Backlash, And I think that you see that illustrated in a few places. I, I think it started in 2016 and this huge... Um, what happened then? I'm no, just kidding. Right, yeah, who can remember? <laughs> um, but essentially this huge terror on both the left and the right at the idea of a woman breaking male monopoly on the highest vision of political power in the United States. And, uh, you know, I think you saw that manifest, you know, obviously on the right in a lot of very obvious ways, um, but I think in less obvious ways on the left as well. And it culturally became less cool to be a feminist after this kind of like mid-2000s golden age of feminism. And you saw that dovetail with, you know, the backlash to obviously the Lean In book, which has a lot of problems, but also to this entire concept of quote-unquote girl boss feminism, which Mm -hmm. is not something feminists themselves ever really promoted. You certainly never heard actual feminists using the term girl boss, but somehow it got pinned on us. This idea that female ambition was ugly and suspect, I think has really been at the core of what we're seeing. And that is happening on the left and on the right. It's happening politically. Roe v. Wade was just overturned um, after decades of, of effort. And it's happening socially 
as well. These things are also cyclical. So Mm -hmm. I certainly don't expect that this moment of backlash is going to last forever. You know, anti-feminist forces grow louder and then they grow softer and they grow more and less powerful with respect to feminists as, as well, you know, who also see moments of uh, of gain and moments of loss. So I would agree that this is a moment where feminists have been set back on our heels, where the movement is doing a lot of inward looking. I mean, many move, feminist movements, there's it's a very diverse <laughs> chunk of women who make up these movements, are doing this kind of inward looking and question asking on everything about how did we lose Roe to the questions that Louise raises in her book. I mean, hers is one of like five or six books on this question of what is a feminist sexual ethic or what would be a better sexual ethic than the one we have now that have come out in the past year. These are things that feminists are really actively talking about and interrogating, but it is happening in a broader social and political context where feminism is less popular and even where the very idea that women should be ambitious, that women can hope to have as much individual freedom as men have long had, is an idea that is looked at with increasing suspicion. And I think that that's a shame. I wonder if part of the reason also that people are turning away from feminism is that at least in its elite manifestations, it seems quite decadent and removed from the concerns of most women, right? I follow a lot of feminist organizations online, some of which I was, you know, used to be really supportive of. And they're getting into kind of very obscure purity battles, often about language, about whether or not you can use the word mother instead of birthing people, whether that's exclusionary to trans men. And in the meantime, Roe got overturned. How much of the turn against feminism has to do with the way that it has eaten itself, or maybe to put it another way, taken its eye off the prize of what really matters. These internal battles have been a hallmark of feminist movements since forever, right? And leftist movements generally. You know, there have always been these kind of factions at war with each other. I do think it is always easier for any movement to fight against something when there is a clear and present danger and enemy. And I do think what you're going to see in the wake of Roe being overturned is feminist movements being a little bit more cohesive to focus on expanding reproductive rights. It's always more difficult for any social movement to defend a gain in a completely unified way, right, than it is to unify to right a perceived wrong. Um, I don't blame the kind of language battles within feminism for taking the movement's eye off the ball and Roe being overturned. I think that's a much more complex outcome of several decades of of anti-abortion activism and some serious missteps by the Democratic Party and by the pro-choice movement as well. But I think when we're, you know, when we're talking about this particular moment of anti-feminist backlash, I'm not sure that there's much the feminist movement itself could have done to bulwark against it because these things are cyclical. And I think, unfortunately, the movement is now back at a point where we are in this kind of reactionary space and Mm -hmm. having to push back against all of these encroachments 
rather than getting to be thoughtful and creative about how we move forward, because there's there's so much bad stuff happening <laughs> that we're in a very defensive posture and not in a particularly powerful posture. Louise, where do you agree and disagree with Jill on that? Do you see the out-of-step quality of where much of at least the vanguard of the feminist movement is as being partially to blame for the backlash when a person can't simply say, I'm a woman, and instead you get punished if you don't use the right phrasing. Doesn't that turn away normal, ordinary women who would otherwise find a lot to to gain from being a part of this movement? Um, so I think there are, there are two kind of uh, statistical phenomena going on here. One is the fact that there's never been a majority of women who describe themselves as feminists, right, since the second wave or at any point. It's always been a, a representation problem. I think what's going on there is a lot to do with the fact that women in the public eye in general and feminists in the public eye are by their very nature very unrepresentative of other women. And, you know, I completely include myself in that. I mean, all the obvious stuff to do with class and race. But also in the sense of, for instance, not having children, women who are really successful in public life are much less likely to have children than other women temperamentally I think feminists tend to be different from average people you know we're much more likely to be kind of disagreeable and independent minded and all this kind of stuff that lends oneself to being a a political campaigner and there is a really long-standing gap between what feminists think women want and what women actually say they want in polling I mean like one example of that for instance would be that the push towards having women in the in the labour market, right, makes complete sense if the job that you're trying to gain access to is one that is, you know, like mine, cushy, intellectually stimulating, well-remunerated, etc. It makes a lot less sense if the job that you're forced to go into because the family wage no longer exists is, say, stacking shelves or whatever it might be, right? So that there's always been that continuous problem, which is, of course, means that when you ask families, would you prefer to stay home with your children more than go out to work? You know, it's an inconvenient fact for feminism that the vast majority of families say that they would much rather have mums be at home more. And I think that my view is that we should not be sort of banging our heads against a brick wall indefinitely and trying to force people to want things that are different from from what they say they want. I think that there is sort of undue confidence among many prominent feminists in thinking that they they know what the rest of womankind wants when actually I think it's fairly clear that they don't. I mean, on the question more recently of why feminism support seems to be declining and there have been some particularly kind of startling polls suggesting that there is definitely a backlash happening. I agree with Jill on that. I don't think you can ignore the trans movement, to be honest. I'm sa- I'm saying this from, you know, from Britain where the whole, the nature of the debate is very different. Um, it's much easier now in the UK to be critical of some of the extremes of trans activism. But I think it, particularly in the States and to some extent in Britain, feminists have hitched their wagon to a movement that has some really, really serious conflicts on the nature of women's rights. And I think that a lot of women are looking at a movement that says, for instance, that male-bodied prisoners should be housed in women's prisons and saying, if that's feminism, I want nothing to do with it. And I think that's, I know that's a really difficult conversation to have, particularly in the States, but it's a conversation that has to be had because I agree with you, Barry, that if, if the focus is all along about talking about birthing persons in relation to abortion rights... There's no hope. I think we need a whole nother session <laughs> for a, a getting into the trans debate. 
want to save that for another time because I don't think it deserves short shrift. So final question to both of you, what should the future of feminism look like and what should the future of a healthy sexual culture look like? Louise, maybe let's start with you. The conclusion to your book is titled, Listen to Your Mother. (laughs) What is your prescription? Describe for us what a healthy feminism and a healthy sexual culture looks like. And then Jill will give you the final word. So I think that one of the problems with progress as an idea that we touched on right at the beginning of the show, talking about the arc of history, is that by necessity, it requires you to reject people of the past. Right. The whole... I think you call it chronological snobbery. As C.S. Lewis calls it chronological snobbery, and I stole his phrase, yeah. The, this idea that people, whatever people thought in the past, must necessarily be worse than what people think now, which I think is just kind of, should be patently nonsense, but is a surprisingly influential idea. And I think that one of the problems for feminism is these constant waves of matricide, that every new wave must reject the ideas of the older wave, And that, you know, listening to your mother or even worse, listening to your grandmother is kind of an impossible idea within the progress model. So I think, I mean, I'd start from there, yeah. I think that we, the feminist movement has become disconnected from reality in a whole host of ways. The reason I ended with a chapter called Listen to Your Mother is because I think that's a really good place to start. Listen, I said, not obey. (laughs) Jill, how about you? I imagine you don't think the feminist movement has become disconnected from reality. But as has been made clear in this conversation, you also think it has a long way to go. So future of feminism, healthy sexual culture, what does it look like? So I think the future of feminism that would help to beget a healthier cultural broadly, (laughs) including sexually, would be focusing on making necessary material improvements to women's lives. You know, Louise said earlier that the vast majority of women don't want to work. Maybe that's true in the UK. I don't know. I just pulled up a 2019 Pew survey in the US that shows that 80% of women with children under the age, uh, under the age of 18 do want to work full-time or part-time. Um, Preschool is a completely different kettle of fish though. That's what I mean. It's the little children years when women really don't want to work. Possibly, I don't know. I just looked up a study that was women with kids under the age, under the age of eighteen, generally, and it's certainly feminists in the U.S. who have pushed for things like really generous paid parental leave for mothers and fathers, so that very very small children can have a parent at home with them full time. So, to me, that's that's part of the work of feminism is instead of simply trying to integrate women into a system that was created to benefit and privilege male experience. Asking what is the reality of women's lives and how can we think through reshaping the way that we structure our workforces, the way we structure our culture, the way we think about sex, in order to essentially see women as actors, just like men, and to see women as equally as entitled to lives full of purpose and meaning, whether within the family or outside of it, or both, as people entitled to lives of sexual pleasure, as entitled to human connection uh, and a variety of, of human connections, social, economic, professional, personal, familial. I think if we start there, instead of trying to simply fold women in to something that wasn't built for them, instead asking, what structures can we put in place with, with political policies, which in, with investment, with you know, tangible shifts? that would 
make it possible for more women and frankly, for more men as well to be able to pursue whatever it is that brings them meaning, happiness, connection, and a good life. Instead of thinking through, okay, women should do X and their role in society is X and men should do Y and their role is Y, which made some people happy, but made a lot of people miserable, which is how we got a feminist movement in the first place. How can we create conditions for people to have maximal support, maximal connection, and also maximal freedom so that they can pursue whatever it is that brings them meaning, purpose, and happiness? To me, that's the work of a feminist movement, and that's a feminist movement that will also help to create a healthier, more humanistic sexual ethic. Jill, Louise, thanks for modeling the kind of thoughtful debate that I think we need a lot more of. I really appreciate you both taking the time. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much, both of you. My thanks to Louise and Jill. Check out Louise's new book, The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. And check out Jill's newsletter at jill.substack.com. As always, thanks to you for listening. Did you learn something? Did you find any of your assumptions challenged? Did you hear things you disagreed with and wanted to scream at me or either of the debaters? No? Good. I hope so. If you felt any of those things... Share this podcast with people in your community and use it to have an honest debate with your friends about this important subject. Last, if you want to support our work, subscribe to our newsletter at commonsense.news. See you soon. This is Brian Dean Wright, former CIA operations officer. By now, you've probably heard of my podcast, The President's Daily Brief. We travel around the world talking about the most pressing news of the day. And the goal is to take complicated issues, both here and abroad, and make them really simple to understand. We also talk about solutions to the problems that we discuss, just like the actual brief delivered to the president each day in the Oval Office. So download and subscribe to The President's Daily Brief, available on all major podcast platforms starting at 6 a.m. Eastern, Monday through Friday. It'd be a pleasure if you joined us.